stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. It's the final Daily Maverick audio show of the year on cliffcentral.com. Uh, I'm joined in studio by Greg Nicholson, Simon Allison, and Ranjini Munusami. And I'm your host, Stilly Sharalambus. We'll be going over some of the biggest stories that happened this year that filled the pages of the Daily Maverick, that uh, caused debates in the editorial newsroom and out there amongst the reading public. Um, so some of the biggest stories, I think, you know, uh, looking back just from a South African context, um, it, you know, we often debate about this and we, we chuckle at how it really is the gift that keeps on giving. Um, you know, it's not, you know, you struggle to go a week or two before the next big scandal, um, breaks onto our, our newspapers and our, and our computers. Um, and started off on a, on a note for you, Greg, following some of the, uh, the shootings by South African police service uh, around the country. Yeah, I was saying just before we went on air that it's quite, it seems quite crazy now that so much has happened this year that we forget one of the early stories of this year as uh, sort of elections were starting to heat up with these protests that were happening across the country. And in a number of instances, we saw police open fire on protests using live ammunition and kill them. And then I think it was just last week or the week before, we also saw in the Eastern Cape police kill, uh, I think it was it two protesters or one that died over in the Eastern Cape as they were trying to, um, get, get the goods from a turned over rice truck. And it sort of really hit home um, at the the policing problems we have in South Africa that really um, were apparent after the Marikana killings in 2012, and they they spurred, spurred up against again this year. And we have to sort of ask ourselves as we come to the end of the year, um, why does this continue happening, and how can the police? Transform, or will they ever transform to actually become a service rather than a militarized force? And will they learn any, any lessons? It, seem, it seems not. You know, if we look back to the Andres Tatani incident, we look back at Marikana, it doesn't look like they've taken their fingers off the trigger at all. It seems not. And I think one of the bigger things is training. To learn lessons, we have to have cops who are trained and know what they're doing in these situations and how to handle themselves in quite volatile, you know, these quite dangerous and volatile situations, but they don't. And so it just seems to, history just seems to keep on repeating itself. I've got to say, it's not limited, limited to South Africa, this trend. I've noticed that this year, particularly continentally, um, you look across Africa and some of the, the major countries, Kenya and Nigeria in particular, where the militarization of the police forces um, is a really big trend. Um, it, it's, it's, I, I'm not sure why if all the leaders think it's a good idea to, to sort of introduce these military concepts into the way they deal with domestic disputes. I think it's because leaders have this need to look hard um they need to look like they're in control in charge um and when there's a problem sending in the military or sending in police that look like military is is the most um sort of um powerful image you can send but it's it's been repeatedly shown over and over again that it is it is not the most effective way of dealing with major threats like terrorism which is what they're dealing with in nigeria and kenya um or uh you know or we're dealing with to service delivery concerns right? exactly <laughs> but, but we've, i think we've seen two very different situations on different sides of the world where in hong kong you had peaceful protests 
um, pro-democracy protests and in the United States, um, in Ferguson and uh, other parts of uh, of the United States where you've had extremely violent protests and there again you've had the security forces being marched out or, or rather the, the, the police services being marched out against uh, uh, civilians and all that does is, is cause further aggression. Now mm. you've seen that in, in, in Hong Kong that was not the response. Rather, you know, it was just a, a demonstration of people power. Um, and, I love and, it and China being the role model for dealing with protesters. Yes, uh, and you know, in the United States, it swung completely the other way, uh, where it, the 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 momentum of the protests is picked up, particularly because of the response of the government. And we see it uh, again and again here. When you go to protests, there's a similar pattern that happens every single time. The, the protests start early in the morning around 4 a.m. after, after months and months of service delivery concerns, be it water, housing, electricity, whatever it is. Then they go to the streets and they burn tires and they'll often close down a road, um, to try and get attention, maybe throwing some rocks at cars or things like that. Police are deployed, usually the metro cops go there first. And eventually what happens is there's often a bit of a standoff between the police and the protesters. And at some point, police generally either want to push the protesters back off the road or they decide, no, they just need to close this thing down. And then what happens is the SAPS generally in their nyalas drive up, shoot um, tear gas or stun grenades or rubber bullets at the protesters. And what often goes from being sort of a simmering standoff turns into a very violent conflict. And the police feel this by by largely attacking these protesters rather than sort of engaging them or just just allowing them their distance. And But something clearly needs to change because people will continue to die if this approach continues. I have an idea. I Here we, we should uh, we should replace the nyalas. Those nyalas they send shivers down my spine every time I see them. They're really nasty looking machines. And exactly, yeah. it, it's, it has has all the that old echoes mm. of um, our t- terrible history. Yeah, and just painting them a different color doesn't, doesn't no no help. doesn't help doesn't help. Um, so let's replace them with ice cream trucks. <laughs> <laughs> do, do they dispense ice cream, or is this a ploy? No, 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 to no, get no they just there. dispense ice, ice cream. cream. Imagine, you know, the police rock up and be like, "Guys, guys, just just have some ice cream, okay?" Uh, ice cream doesn't cut it in South Africa. You need chicken trucks. Fried <laughs> 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 yeah. <Try> chicken trucks. <laughs> yeah, and, and make sure it's the leg. It's got to be the leg. <laughs> uh, but just getting back to the service delivery protests, um, Ranjini, were you surprised that that didn't play? As big a role as it could have in the elections, which was probably one of the biggest, was probably the biggest story of the year in South Africa from a, from a, a media perspective. Are you surprised it didn't play a bigger role? You know, the thing with, the, uh, with uh, protests in South Africa is that we have amongst the highest rate of protests uh, in the world. And it's there consistently. Uh, it's just that there are few of them that make the news um, because of the violent nature and they tend to block roads and that kind of gets uh, uh, media attention. But there's consistently uh, disgruntlement amongst communities uh, that are not sort of, you know, not, not channeled uh, and, and we don't become aware of it. And I think, um, you know, but what happens is that a different phenomenon happens during an election campaign because, you know, people flood communities, politicians flood communities, and they give some kind of temporary uh, relief to people's complaints mm-hmm. because they give the impression that they are listening. Mm-hmm. When, uh, you know, it's, it's all, it's all part of the campaign game. So we've seen that there was kind of a, 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 a drop 
in the amount of protests just before the election. And that's because that there, there was this one of was that the ANC, flood, you know, flooded the country mm. or was uh, right, right, uh, right across the country wall to wall. But also because there were there were parties like the EFF, who, which provided a different dimension uh, to, to South African politics, where they were saying to communities, we here now, we're going to take up your grievances and uh, we're going to, you're going to be heard on a national platform. So I think there's also been uh, a little bit of watching and waiting as to see how, how things, how dynamics are playing out, particularly in parliament. And certainly um, the EFF does give the impression to communities, especially, you know, the poor and frustrated communities that they are channeling their interests on issues such as land and delivery. Um, and unemployment and things like that. So I think that's the reason that, you know, there hasn't been s- such a prevalence of, of service delivery protest as there has been in previous years. But I think also it's uh, often people seem to assume and, you know, there's, there's this question from, from a lot of people that say why are people are protesting, but then the ANC continues to get voted in in these areas. Mm-hmm. I think it's wrong for people just to assume just because there's a service delivery protest, the uh, residents of a certain community will vote for someone else. That doesn't, it, one doesn't necessarily equal the other. Especially also at a national level. That's right, at national and provincial levels. And so, so, also, often these, the issues when service delivery protests happen are often very localized. And it doesn't necessarily mean they want a change of the ANC. They might want a change of that councillor, but they might also think that the ANC is still best place to deliver for them. And I think what Ranjini was touching on is previously in the past, if, if you were protesting perhaps, even if you didn't want the ANC, there wasn't particularly a viable alternative to vote for when the DA is often still not seen as as a party for for the poor um, majority of South Africans. Now that the EFF is, is coming in and making a lot of waves, that could change, but we're still waiting to see what happens. And I think the 2016 municipal elections will be extremely interesting to see then if on a local level we do see some sort of shift in these communities that have um, that have sort of caused caused um, a lot of strife for the state in the past. Uh, Ranjini, are you expecting to see a difference, uh, a big difference between the national and the, the local elections, the municipal elections next year? Well, the elections in 2016, mm. so there, there's some time. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, how the year plays out next year will have uh, a lot to do with it. You know, this was an extremely rocky year in South African politics, and we saw um, the dynamics change a lot with the entrance of the EFF in Parliament. And I think that, you know, they are going to continue to rock the boat uh, next year. And I think that they will um, make a play for for cer- certain uh, big municipalities, but so will the Democrats. Alliance. I think there, there will be a big play for Gauteng, uh, uh, particularly uh, Johannesburg, uh, Ekuruleni and Pretoria, and then uh, Port Elizabeth in the Eastern Cape, I think Cape Town. Um, you know, the, so, so the, the big metros, I think that there will be major fights. But, you know, I think by and large, uh, in you know the, the the rest of South Africa, I don't think that there will be too much change. But I think what what will ha- what will happen is that there will certainly be more, uh, the, or, or rather, a reduction of the ANC's dominance in municipalities. So, and I think that will be a healthy sign for for democracy. But the thing is that with this, there will the, you know comes power struggles. There'll be a battle for resources. Uh, there'll be you know the the, the fights over uh, municipal tenders and things like that. So I think that there'll be a lot more instability and aggression. 
corruption, uh, fighting, you know, at at, lo- at different levels of government. So, yeah, I, you know, I think that the, the, um, South Africa is changing. It's 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 beyond the honeymoon period now after 20 years. And um, it's I not think a bad the, honeymoon period, 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, certainly yeah. a long honeymoon. But certainly for the ANC, it has been. They haven't been. They haven't confronted any kind of major challenge up to now. Mm. Uh, someone um, described it the other day as the as the end of the beginning for the, for this country. And I thought that was quite a poignant uh, way of looking at um, what we're going through and what we, what we, you know, what's happening right now. And I think if we look at, you know, what's happening in, in parliament, the changes, you know, um, I don't know if we could say the ANC is on the back foot, but definitely facing more pressure and more challenges than, than they have, uh, you know, in the last 20 years of, of, of being the ruling party in this country. Well, look, I, I think that the last uh, 12 months has been kind of like, us crossing some sort of bridge with the passing of Nelson Mandela, uh, with the fifth democratic elections, the introduction of the new parliament. Uh, and, and certainly, uh, you know, the, I think that the memory of apartheid is now receding. You've got a lot more youth voters. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, that there isn't as much of, um, uh, you know, a strong cohesion to the NC, you know, sentimental cohesion to the NC as as they used to be in the past. So I think that now there's a new era. Certainly, the country is the perceptions of the country internally and extend, uh, externally are changing significantly. Uh, and I think that the difficulties that we are going through, both through the economy, uh, the the downgrades in uh, the the uh, the country's uh, ratings, uh, the problems with with the power supply, uh, the breakdown of our uh, uh, certainly big parastatals, uh, state-owned enterprises. I think all of that is starting to change perceptions South Africans have about the country and the government significantly. And I think that will have an ultimate impact on how people vote. Because up to now, I think for large sections of the population, it's been extremely difficult to go into a voting booth to look at the NC flag mm. and know the history behind mm. it and vote for another party. Mm. You know, for, for large sections of the population, you can't do that. They, if there's just too much history mm. And sentiment behind that NC flag, but I think that because of the way that the country has evolved, particularly over the last twelve months, you're going to find that a lot more people be willing to be open to uh, other choices. And the, the challenge for the ANC isn't that all of their supporters who previously have voted in ANC for whether they think that the problem, whether they think the ANC. They're going to vote for the ANC because of history and the struggle or whether they think the ANC is the best party to deliver um, services or to push for a non-racial United South Africa. It's, it's the sum that some people may not do that anymore. So as, as their majority dwindles, it's not like everyone all of a sudden is going to start thinking, oh, and like disregard the ANC's history or not think the ANC can deliver on services. But as that figure dwindles, that's where they're going to have a real challenge, particularly when we come up to the municipalities. And it might only be a few percent in certain areas that, that really gives them problems. So as more young people enter the voting, uh, the voting bracket, as more urbanization happens, um, we're going to see an, an erosion of that, um, of that glow of, of liberation at the voting polls, I think, uh, is a way of doing it, uh, of explaining that. Um, Simon, before we go on to uh, the recently announced person, Daily Maverick Person of the Year, uh, which will probably take up the majority of the rest of the show, um, the biggest stories from the continent this year, uh, things that spring to mind, uh, Boko Haram, Bring Back Our Girls, mm-hmm. um, Al-Shabaab, numerous uh, attacks uh, on, the, on the continent. Egypt, the, the chaos up there. Libya. Um, mm. Even more chaos there. It's been a bad year, actually. I so uh, the last was, three was the, years. Sorry, was the war in DRC this year? 
the, the Eastern no, that elections? Was, that was end of last year. Okay, okay, but good. But it does get, it gets <laughs> confusing. Um, I, so the last three years, I've done a, at the end of every year, I've done a Africa for Pessimists. I sort of round up the, the, the five worst stories of the year. And then an Africa for Optimists the next day, where I round up the five most encouraging stories of the year. Um, I'm putting that together today and tomorrow, actually, for this year. Mm. And you know what? There's just so much in the Africa for pessimists. <laughs> um, 2014 has been a really, really bad year. For Not the to continent. mention Ebola. <gasps> Not to mention Ebola. Um, yeah, so look, we've had Ebola. We've had South Sudan um, mm-hmm. fracturing into civil war. We've got Boko Haram in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Not doing their usual thing. They're, they're, they're transforming from a guerrilla movement into an actual secessionist movement that are taking territory and controlling it. It's, it's turning into a civil war in Nigeria. You've got complete anarchy in Libya. That's the only word to describe mm. it because there is no government. There are these, you know, 12 d- different competing centers of power. No one knows what the hell is going on. ISIS could conceivably have its own country very soon. ISIS <laughs> does. ISIS already has two firm footholds, uh, three firm footholds on the African continent. Um, one in Egypt, one in Libya, and increasingly in Nigeria as well. Um, this is extraordinary. Um, what do you have in the optimist section? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question. I've been, I've been trying hard. Well, there have um, been some successful elections. I, I'm going to have an elections, yeah, especially in Southern Africa. Mm. We've had, I think, five static elections this year, and all have gone very, very smoothly. That's fantastic. We, what and else have we had? And thank goodness we still have Robert Mugabe. <laughs> We've still right. got Robert still Mugabe. All is, all is still <laughs> well with the world. You kind of know it's been a bad year when, when Bob's sort of like faded into the background yeah. and doesn't even <laughs> make the news anymore. Exactly. Um, what else in the good news column? Uh, Burkina Faso? The, the is that people a, power, I'm, I see, I'm not that, sure. That, that yeah, yeah. It still could go either way. I, I'm choosing to take the optimistic view because frankly, I need, uh, well, I need Lesotho, content. Lesotho had an upheaval, but it, uh, it stabilized. Yeah, and it was a nothing. It didn't affect the country, really. It didn't affect um, us. <laughs> it didn't affect us for once. Um, what else in the good news column? Uh, I've got Aliko Dangote, the, the richest man in Africa. Investing something like nine billion in building Ni- in a, a, a Nigerian oil refinery, which I think is a great story. Because what Nigeria does at the moment is they pump all this oil out the ground, they send it to China, and then China sends back petrol, which is just—I mean—it's yeah. just crazy. And they're paying huge prices yeah. for the um, transport and the, the fuel. Yeah. And, and what happens is actually petrol in Nigeria is quite cheap, but that's because the government is subsidizing it. So all the money mm. the government earns from the oil is going into subsidizing mm. petrol because they know they have to give the people cheap petrol because mm. they're an oil-producing country. Politically, petrol in Nigeria must be cheap. But uh, it's not because – it's not cheap because – that's where the petrol is. It's mm. cheap because the government's funneling all the profits, the ones that aren't being stolen, um, into into subsidizing it. So I think that's a great um, initiative. And the dropping of charges against Kenyatta, is that a ah, well, good or bad um, story? Well, this is, can we talk about the African person yeah, of the year, Stilly? Um, so this year's Daily Maverick African person of the year. It's the first time we have given this... Um, is it, is it an award? I'm not sure. Uh, a, 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 a nod. A title. Hmm, a title. Yeah. Um, we have, well, we, we thought about it and the, we figured the person who's made the most impact on the African continent for good and bad is President Uhuru Kenyatta, the, the president of Kenya. Um, and he has had quite a remarkable year. Um, the biggest thing, of course, is that he has escaped scot-free from his charges at the International Criminal Court. It never got to the trial stage. He never had to mount a defense. 
And that is because the prosecution could not get access in Kenya to any of the documents or witnesses it needed to. Um, there was a, a, a very nasty campaign of intimidation against the witnesses. Um, some died, some disappeared, some were too scared to testify, some changed their testimony, testimony at the last minute. Um, now, of course, there's no direct link between Kenyatta and this campaign no, of intimidation, of but it just not. it just yeah. happens to be that all the witnesses mm. that uh, got got intimidated um, were the ones that were gonna gonna go against him. Um, also, the court has been unable to access key financial records, mm. and and that is, was really Kenyatta's role. Now, this is the, one of the richest men in Kenya. Um, his the Kenyatta family is the richest family in in, in Kenya. Um, and his role in the post-election violence allegedly was the the finance master. He was the one um, making sure everyone got the money to do all the various nasty things that they were doing. Um, and without access to those financial records, they can't prove that. But of course, who in the Kenyan, even if Kenyatta is not deliberately blocking it himself, who in the Kenyan government is going to say, you know what, um, technically this body that I, that I control, whatever, this or, the Auditor General say, is an independent body, and therefore I will hand over documents that are going to incriminate my commander-in-chief, who appointed me, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not going to happen. It's, it's just not going to happen. It's the same situation with Mkandla. Mm. Exactly. We have a massive cover-up. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and but again, with, you know, with, with higher it's, stakes. It's not necessarily yeah. Zuma. Initiating the cover-up. Yes. It's just the fact of the his perception position. of number one. Um, it, it's people know what they are expected to do. But surely this is an indictment on the effort to find find out what happened in Kenya's post-election violence and find some sort of justice to that, because surely the Kenyan system isn't going to going to well, well, prove oh, any, no, it's not. bring any truth but, but, out. But the, the problem here is is Kenyans. Kenyans voted for Kenyatta. Mm. Um, the moment they voted for Kenyatta as president, that's the moment Kenya, the majority of Kenyans, chose not to pursue justice for the victims of post-election And you violence. saw the send-off as well when he went off to the ICC. Mm. It was like a hero going off it's into crazy. battle. I mean, and that's been Kenyatta's genius in this. Is He has, he has transformed this um, stain on his reputation to um, a campaign platform. some kind of cam- yeah, campaign platform. Yeah. And he's, he's turned it into a badge of honor. Mm. Um, he's turned himself into the poster child for victimization and bias against Africans. And he's leading the fight against neo-colonialist, this, you know, bias international justice. I mean, it's crazy the things that he's been able to, to get away with. And that touches why he's our person of the year, doesn't it? Because it's not just about Kenya. It's about his position exactly. within Africa um, and that relationship to the West. I mean, he has, I mean, r- earlier this year, um, African leaders voted to um, give themselves immunity at, at the new African Court of, of Justice. Um, Why not, if they can? And, and that, but that was completely at Kenya's behest. Mm. Um, without Kenya pushing for that, that wouldn't have happened. I mean, that, that's the scale of the changes. Kenyatta, almost single-handedly, has now given African leaders immunity. Um, in their own continent from serious crimes. Because, I mean, what could possibly go wrong with that? Right? Exactly. I mean, <laughs> blanket exactly. immunity. Um, um, but it's not just, it's not just this, this international justice issue. Um, within Kenya, Kenyatta has been extraordinarily influential this year. What he is doing, um, because, of course, Kenya is, is deeply involved in Somalia, which is an, another element um, in pushing back al-Shabaab. And, of course, al-Shabaab are reacting um, and are launching a, a huge number of attacks in Kenya. And what Kenyatta is doing to, to combat this is, as we mentioned before, he's militarizing the police. Um, he is sort of tacitly authorizing the, this, this counterterrorism unit within the police to embark on a series of extrajudicial killings, torture, um, arbitrary arrests. Um, 
he's slowly turning Kenya into uh, sort of like a soft military state, um, which, I mean, this is crazy for Kenya. This is Kenya. This is one of the strongest civilian governments we have on the continent um, that's slowly being eaten away. And, 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 and it, yeah, that civilian aspect is being eaten away. Um, and Kenyatta is presiding over that. So he's fundamentally changing the character of his country as well. So that's why he is a person of the year, because he has just been so extraordinarily influential both on the continent and within his own country. Yes, but you you compare, uh, for example, how he is perceived in his country and the continent compared to how good luck Jonathan is perceived in his country. Um, you know, I think that the the kidnapping of the girls exposed him very badly. Um, you know, and ex- exposed that he is he's not in control of his ca- country. Mm. So I think that in terms of uh, perception, uh, people people are swinging more towards the Kenyatta type rule. Uh, yeah, with a firm mind, hand. Bear in mind that Kenyatta has credibility and legitimacy. He is the son of Jomo Kenyatta, the founding father, the Nelson Mandela figure of Kenya. Like th- th- this is not some random. Good luck, Jonathan does not have that. Good luck, Jonathan has no natural constituency of his own. He was never meant to be president. He was only got there because uh, Umaru Yaradua died in office. So Kenyatta, uh, sorry, uh, good luck, Jonathan. He's constantly having to prove himself. Kenyatta doesn't have that problem. But but if we look at Kenyatta and and his sort of firm rule and the increasing militarization of the state, he's still unable to stop attacks from Al Shabaab within within Kenya. Do you think that will deteriorate his legitimacy? Um, well, well, this is this weird contradiction um, that that leaders always, you know, I mean, America's done exactly the same thing with the war on terror. They go for the hardline military approach to solving terrorism, and I think that's because they think that's what the public demands and perhaps they're right you know um because it builds patriotism as well because people build, feel they're under does. siege um and, and i think i think that's a big part of it is that yes it's not i don't think it's going to stop the attacks um i think it's completely the wrong way to go about stopping the attacks um by i mean what his, one of his major things this year has been a, a huge police operation to arrest ethnic somalis just because they're somalis i mean if you're walking down the street and you look somali you get arrested um Jeez. That's what's going on in Kenya at the moment. Now, Kenya has historically had a large ethnic Somali population. Mm. Many of them are Kenyans and have been for mm. several generations. Um, now they're being locked up. Um, where does that put them politically? What does that do to a person, you know, um, walking down the street and you get locked up? Well, suddenly you're not Kenyan anymore. Um, you're, you're, you're looking for other political options and maybe you find your home in El Shabab. Um, so repeatedly that that's what's happening. It, it is fueling the next wave of terrorism, what he's doing now. But it is making him look good to his natural constituency. And I think that's the, that, that's the important bit as far as he's concerned. Uh, I want to bring the focus um, back home um, a little bit. And, and also, um, you know, Ranjini, after years of years being on the political beat, uh, you wrote... Years and years. Years and years. Moving along. <laughs> <laughs> um, you wrote an article that became the, the most read article of all time on Daily Maverick called... The Pistorius trial, the arrogance, the privilege, the fast, the insult. And it's quite uh, ironic that today the appeal is being heard to take uh, um, against the uh, the murder conviction or the lack of the murder conviction today. Um, and this is a story that just kind of gripped the entire nation and a lot of uh, a lot of the world, a lot of, uh, you know, the world's media, um, you know, descended on, on South Africa. Uh, we as a country, our justice system was under scrutiny. Um, and, and then this article came out and I think you kind of sort of tapped into 
pretty much what a lot of people were feeling and thinking and saying it, you know, at those grumperati dinner parties. Um, yeah, so yeah. where do you think this appeal will go and what do you think the trial um, did for this country uh, and, and our perception and brand South Africa? Look, um, you know, I think we are an extremely engaged society. We, we you know, if, with every new thing, as you were saying earlier, every every week or every two weeks, mm. there's, there's something new. But I think that's the from the moment the news broke uh, on um, the 14th of January 2013, there has been something extraordinary about the Oscar Pistorius case, uh, and one of it was because of the personality he is, um, his achievements, uh, you know what, what what he represented both in sport and I think in human achievement for South Africa. And you know, South Africa is in desperate need of heroes for good guys. Because there's so many get bad guys, there's so many, so much bad, so many bad stories around. And I think Oscar Pistorius was a good story to tell, to use ANC parlance, um, for a long time. And, um, you know, he, he built him, he built himself up against the odds. And I think that once, uh, uh the news broke that he had shot his girlfriend, um, and, these, pers- these two personalities emerged. You had South African take, South Africans taking sides. Um, and it, it, it was more than just a murder trial. I think it was a trial of our society because there were so many other issues that rotated around it as well, such as, uh, you know, just violence in general in our society, gender violence, issues of security, and then the justice system and how it operates. Um, and I think, you know that it it was yes it was the the personality of Oscar Pistorius it was also these huge legal minds doing battle in a South African courtroom um and the the evidence that was presented the the nature of the case and all the issues that were brought into it and i think that you know different people tapped into different aspects of it for example you know the when the defense was pre- presenting its case about Oscar's need to protect himself and protect somebody he loved. And people found themselves in that room. And then the other side of it, where you are a, a, a young woman who gets involved with a, with, with a young man who's, who's this huge personality in South Africa, but not everybody does that, but still, you enter into a relationship with somebody in a society uh, where, where, where gender violence is so dominant. And people behaving badly so dominant. Um, and you take that risk and then you end up dead. You know, and I think that different people in our society are related to different aspects of this trial in different ways. And I think that is why it sucked so much public attention. Yes, the media, the, the media responded to it in a, 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 a never, a, a unprecedented way with the, with the Oscar channel and with the tweeting, you know, around the clock about it and things like that. But I think that there was something else. There was some other phenomenon about it. But I think that is why, um, the outcome was so disappointing for us as a society because it was bad behavior being excused for 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 mm. other mm. aspects and I, that that is why I wrote that piece that mm. checkbook justice was yes, the thing which it, it. yes it was it was chess, checkbook justice but it was also this thing that the aggressor in this the guy who pulled the trigger became the victim and too far too often in South Africa this there's this use of victimhood to to excuse bad behavior. We've seen it time and time again with Jacob Zuma. 
where he the first it was a political conspiracy against him. It got him off a rape charge. It got him off a corruption mm-hmm. charge because he he was supposedly a victim of conspiracy. But he continues to behave badly, and they continuous there's this continuous need to excuse his behavior as being. Uh, because he is, is some sort of victim. We've seen this taken to ridiculous proportions on the Nkandla matter, where the ANC MPs in Parliament are, are claiming that he is the victim of the opposition, of the media, of everybody else, because he got this big house and he didn't ask for it. You know, yeah. and, and, and poor Jay Z. Yes. It's, like, it's like the knee jerk reaction is to claim victimhood rather than yes. be accountable. Yes. Mm. And you see that that's the phenomenon I think that we have to deal with as a society is that there is no account and that is why there is the, the sense in South Africa that there is no accountability for everything that goes wrong, whether it's in Kandla, whether it's Oscar, whether it's Shri and Diwani, whether it's the electricity crisis. Whether it's potholes. Yes. Yes. You know, all these things happen. People get away with it. Sometimes a slap on the wrist, sometimes a couple months in jail, and sometimes they just get to like wander off back to their normal lives like Shri and Diwani. You mentioned the media and the unprecedented response that we had to this case. And, Greg, you were involved in a lot of those scrums um, at the courthouse. Um, I thought service delivery protests were bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you should you should see Reuters and the Daily Mail reporters. They got da- the Daily Mail actually are bad. I can, I can confirm that. <laughs> Go on. Um, so it was – I mean, how was it for you personally to see this sort of international media attention on the country – um, and also the differences with how they approached um, the coverage of the trial to the, to the way we approach, if there were any. I guess looking back, it's a little bit hard to say because initially it was just a shock, you know, um, when, when we went to the first bail hearings at the Pretoria Magistrates Court and we just saw so many of these TV tents from channels around the world that I've never even heard of. Um, it was actually just a shock just to see how many people there. I was quite blown away. And I think after that it was being there, it wasn't so much about – judging these international sort of correspondents and things was actually trying to work around them because there's so many of them also trying to access the same things. And there's so many people from all these different countries with all of their producers and assistants and things like that. It was actually quite a challenge just to do our work with them all there. But in terms of the content, um, you know, you had these moments where you might be walking past someone. Or I, can, I can give you an example. I remember on the first day of the case um, outside the, the Pretoria High Court when Oscar was supposed to arrive and all of us photographers and the videographers and the cameramen are waiting outside in this scrum, you know, lining the hall of um, sort of creating this sort of hallway um, for Oscar to walk through. And we're all jostling there and you're trying to stand firm and waiting for, you know, waiting for him to come. For We're waiting for about two hours, I think, and people are smoking, drinking coffee. And then eventually Carl Pistorius comes in. And there was an Australian, an Australian, um, broadcaster from Channel 7 who leans out over the pack of journalists and just yells, Oscar, how are you feeling today? <laughs> <laughs> and it was Carl Pastoria. So, and all the local journalists just started laughing, you know, pissing themselves. And then he, he just sort of looked sheepish, you know, and said, oh, I didn't know, I didn't know. <laughs> and that's how it often went throughout the case. Um, we had the international guys, because they're catering to an international audience, they, they missed a lot of the nuances and read, they read a lot into certain things, um, particularly on, on issues of gender-based violence with, which local, local media did too. But, you know, we saw the, we saw some of the reports saying that, you know, Pistorius is going to get killed in prison. This is the sort of prison he's going to. But I think a lot of the local media saw that often if you've got money and you're a celebrity, you're not going to get treated like Sky News says you're going to get treated in prison. So some of those different nuances, um, there are different nuances for the local and international media, and I think sometimes the international media um, bordered on the more sensational stories. Was the story as big in Australia as, uh, I mean, 
couldn't have been as big as it was here. Well, I don't know what, about what? No, I don't know about that actually. I think it might have been bigger. Yeah, to, to, bigger. to tell you the truth, all of my family um, in Australia knew all of what's going on, and if you saw, I think. Um, we saw just, it was around the judgment. I saw like a pie, a pie chart of all the tweets that were coming out from around the world and the, about the Oscar trial and the different areas they were coming from. And although Australia only has a population of, I think, 21 million compared to South Africa's 51, there were more tweets coming from Australia about the Pistorius trial than South Africa. Wow. Well, why do you think there was such big interest in the in the in the case? I think largely because it's such a huge drama. First of all, Oscar Pistorius is known around the world, and um, in in Australia, he got a lot of headlines when he was um, trying to get um, approved to to run with able-bodied athletes. So that was already a story, and a lot of people knew who he was. And then, secondly, because I think Australia is unlike South Africa; it's often a, a society yearning for drama. <laughs> where there, there, there aren't it was the end of neighbors season that's right, 97 that's right. The, and, uh, the scandals of course there are scandals mm-hmm. political and social and there are there is crime and things like that but often not on this sort of scale and so so when something like this happens internationally um it's it's going to be followed largely largely for the voyeuristic sort of aspects to it the law, law and order type aspect to it because it's sensational it's exciting it's a it's a story it's hard to turn away from um i think we can go on to our person of the year the daily maverick announced uh today the person of the year being julius malema and, and you know having discussed this at, at our uh, last editorial meeting there wasn't really any debate um over who would be uh nominated as as our person of the year and i think you know, looking back from in the build-up to the elections, the elections themselves, being able to get six percent on the back of, you know, just a few months worth of preparation, uh, without having to register, without having registered voters, it was it was a massive uh, success on behalf of the EFF and pretty much the person who's the entire driving force behind this. And since then, living up to the promises that were made to really shake things up and and you know looking at what's happened in parliament looking at the the emergence of the AFF and obviously a lot of a lot of uh, sizzle we don't know how much substance there is behind it just yet um you know i, I think it was safe to say there wasn't going to be anyone else and uh, you know this really was juju's year yes i think so you know um i i think that uh, julius malema Set out to when he when he started a, uh, his political party. I think he, he set out to prove a point to the ANC, and I think he's made that point within a few months. Uh, in the t- in the way that he has been able to change the dynamics in South African politics so rapidly and so dramatically, um, and I think you know people kind of underestimated him. Um, and I think that on the campaign at trail, the peril. Yes, uh, you know, on the campaign trail, he showed what he's capable of. Um, uh, Greg and I went to the last NC campaign rally at FNB Stadium, and at the same time, he, um, uh, our colleague Richard Poplack was, and and Tapelo Lejo were at uh, the other one at Tembisa, was it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and uh, you know the. It, it, both are large gatherings of people who are extremely loyal, extremely dedicated, but the ANC has um, access to an enormous amount of resources. It has a half a billion rands, hundred and two years of history behind it. Uh, you know that's not something to be like sneezed at. Um, and you know they 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 have the ability to go out right across the country and and rally people. They can bus people in. Whereas with the EFF, at that point they were seven months old. 
Egypt. Um, you know, they, they didn't have much resources. And yet you had people going there to that stadium from early in the morning, standing in the blazing sun and waiting just for that moment to see, be able to listen to Julius Malema. And, you know, to be able to watch Julius Malema, Greg and I went to his the launch of his manifesto. There was so much rubbish you know, that he belted out. For example, that, you know, he would raise the national minimum wage to, or oh, there isn't one at the moment, but he wanted to pitch it at 7,500, you know, for, for like uh, domestic workers, for builders, that kind of thing. And people drink it up. You know, he is like the TB Joshua of South African politics. He's an incredible He's, populist. Yes. <laughs> and he knows which Don't buttons to press. Don't sleep over Julius is out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he knows what buttons to press. He knows how to get a crowd going. He knows what to say. At that um, the launch of the manifesto, you know, he, he was there belting out all this rubbish. And then the next thing, he marches out all these Marikana widow, widows onto the stage. It was a powerful moment mm. because that community has been completely forgotten and neglected by the ANC and he knew how to reach out to mining communities to say people like you were killed yeah the people were left behind they with me now you know and he's taken one of them with him to parliament you know she she's uh, she, she 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 doesn't have like the credentials and education um, that other other MPs have but she's there she's sitting in the house of parliament able to make decisions sit on extremely powerful communities and that's what he's done he's got 25 MPs in in parliament at the moment they are rocking it they are making a huge impression out of those 400 people sitting in that uh, in that house um and I think that I think the moment for South Africa was that that day in August when the president went to go and uh, answer questions, and you know it was uh, it was really something to behold because Musi Maimani comes with with the the weight of the Democratic Alliance. He's got the you know the, 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 they an established party. He went uh, he he was there. He was asking the president's que- president question, and the president was able to silence him and basically say you know sit down. I'm not mm. going to answer you. But Julius Malema stood up, and what happened? You know, it ended with the riot police having to come in. He took service he, delivery protests to parliament. To parliament, yeah. yes. Mm. You Which know, he promised and, to do. He and promised he to change parliament. The president. Yeah. He lectured him. He, you know, he said to him, you know, you must stop this. You, this thing of points of, of order and things to excuse you being held accountable. Pay back the money. When are you going to answer? You know, and the president was sitting there stunned. I, you know, we, we've seen Jacob Zuma in so many different contexts. I've never seen him like standing there uh, like, like a deer in the mm. headlights, not knowing what to do or what to say. You know, normally he's able to just chuckle and walk off mm. and get away with it. And that was the one moment in time when he was not able to. Somebody, he was standing there so long that one of the NC MPs actually had to come and hold his hand and said, come sit down, you know, when the protest was mm. going on. So you could see that this is the impact of the economic freedom fighters and Julius Malema as it hit. Hasn't it also been quite interesting to see um, that sort of, I don't know what the politically correct way of calling it, is, you know, the moderate opposition, pale-faced moderate opposition, Completely almost changing. You're trying to say the white DA. Conservatives. Yes. yes. <laughs> but almost like not, not DA members or, or let's say what would, you know, maybe traditionally be described as their sort of target market voting base. Um, but perceptions of Julius Malema have changed. You know, now that he's now sort of the, almost the spearhead of the opposition. Bad choice uh, of words, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we were 12 months before, uh, you know, he was this buffoon, 
uh, firebrand leader of the youth league, you know, that he mismanaged into its death, basically. Uh, but he's now, you know, in that 12 months, which shows the political genius uh, of the man and why we, we, you know, we gave him the title of person of the year who's had this impact on the country on, you know, taking opposition to the, you know, to the fight to, to the government that we haven't seen before. Yes, I mean, you, you've seen that, um, uh, you know, the, his, he, his impact on parliament is that suddenly, like, very conservative DA MPs are fighting with police and showing off their bruises mm. on Twitter and things. That would never have happened in mm. the past. But I think that, you know, this militancy that he's brought to parliament, people need to adapt to it. The, the, the other opposition parties are having to adapt it. You've seen the Freedom Front Plus suddenly becoming extremely militant, which is very funny, you know. <laughs> um, but, they, they are having to adapt it. And you see the NC completely on the back foot. They do not know how to handle the economic freedom fighters. They don't know what kind of response, how to defend themselves, how to defend the president. Um, you know, so uh, they have instructions from the Tully House to basically use their majority against it. But it's becoming more and more difficult, even with um, the Speaker of Parliament being a, a high-profile member of the, the ANC. Uh, they still are not able to get the better of the EFF. The EFF has this attitude is, we don't care what you do. Take our salary, suspend us. We will still be here to make the point. And I think that there is... The, the ANC has a gun to their heads now because they don't know what is going to happen when Parliament reopens with the State of the Nation address because there is this threat hanging over them and they know that when Julius Malema promises something, he usually does what he says he will do. And Jenny, um, to what extent is the EFF just Malema's cult of personality? I mean, say Malema were to die in a bus crash tomorrow, what happens to the party then? I, I think that it would wither away. I think it's very much about Julius Malema at the moment. And yes, there are some other strong personalities, but I think none of them will be able to keep the momentum going uh, if he had to, to die or, or something like that. And I think that was the danger for them with the, with the court cases against him. Because if he is prohibited from participating in, in parliament, uh, I think the EFF will be in trouble. I think it will, it will, it, you know, it will go the same way as COPE and things. It will reach a peak and then, uh, you know, uh, to, to fade away. I think it is very much a cult of personality because people relate to him and relate to what he says. I think that on some level, Parliament has been good for the EFF on that front because it has allowed some some of their other members and MPs that we had never heard of before or didn't really know to step up when Julius Malema is on study leave or Floyd Flechevam was not there. Flip the bird to the deputy president. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 have, we have gotten to know some other EFF members behind Malema, mm-hmm. which although it won't... It won't make up for, for the loss of Malema if, if he ever does go or something happens to him. It will, um, at, at least they do have some other support, uh, some, some other members that the public now knows. Are we going to look back at 2014 in 20 years' time, say, as a watershed moment in South African politics? If we take into account the emergence of the EFF, what's happened in Parliament, the dissolution of the alliance, um, or what looks like will become the dissolution of of the alliance. Does this have the makings of being the watershed for the next 20 years of South African politics? I think we still have to reach the major turning point. You know, there have been like several um, um, major developments this year, one of which mm. was the breakup of, of COSAT with the expulsion of NUMSA and also the outcome of the elections, uh, the, the big fright that the ANC got in Gauteng. So I, that was a big wake-up mm. call. So yes, there were, there, there were made major, uh, I think, in, uh, developments 
developments in the country, but I don't, I think we still have to reach that big mm. turning point. You know, uh, I think Nkandla has brought us to the brink. Um, you know, in terms of the failure of executive accountability mm. and, and things. But if you add all those things together, and Kandla, ESCOM, Parliament, EFF, the elections, um, the NUMSA's expulsion, you add all those things up together, it, it, it feels like we can't be far away from We're the We're not far points. away. I think, for example, if you have a national blackout, which is possible, uh, I think then th- that could push things over the edge. I, I, I look, I, I think that our economy is fast reaching junk status. Um, the, the, the message from the finance minister at the medium term budget policy statement was that things are extremely bad. And it, you know, it, it looks as if we are getting to that point. Uh, yesterday at the ESCOM press conference, uh, we're looking at a very bad month. Uh, they, the, they announced mm-hmm. that the, they don't Next have diesel months. to keep the lights on in February in particular. Um, so, uh, you know, we, it, it, we could be reaching the, the, that breaking point quite soon, and I'm not sure that it's a completely bad thing for the country mm-hmm. because I think we, you know, we let things go quite quickly uh, here in South Africa. We, things, bad things happen, and we let it go. You know, this family came in and landed their wedding jet at Vatikloof uh, Air Force Base. Uh, it's a it's a military facility, and what did we did do? We all got outraged, and then we let it go. We went to war in the Central African Republic and lost soldiers in mm. battle, and was oh yeah, that happened. Uh, you know, and we let it go. We there far too often where mm. bad decisions are taken, bad things happen, and we we simply move on from it. So I think it may take. Something with a with uh, crisis like a national blackout. But, but general, as a w- what, are we su- what are we supposed to do? We get outraged and then we have an election, and that's where these things are supposed to be set. We have an election, but and also we have an engaged society. Remember that our, uh, we had, a, 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 you know, a very kind of uh, sub, uh, activist society which broke the back of apartheid, mostly because communities stood up and 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 spoke out and said that this is wrong. Now we we not. Uh, I mean, I don't think that we need a civilian rebellion but we need to be able to get, yes the election is the, the way to to express uh, discontent and and the 2016 is going to be that moment that's coming but i think that a, a, you know a lot happens like with the with the electricity crisis now you know people just accept it they 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 adapt to people's bad to the new normal of things going wrong. And, you know, that, that we've seen it in other places in the continent and uh, around the world where a bad leadership is left to fester until it reaches a point of a national crisis. And I think that's why the, the decision is, is up to us now as to when South African society speaks up and say, no, this is not, this is not good enough. And I think while, while elections is one form of um, democratic accountability, it's not the only one. There are other ways we can try and hold the government or officials or business or all sorts of all sorts of different sectors of our society to account, and we shouldn't just look to elections for that. Well, it's uh, time to wrap up uh, the last Daily Maverick show of the year on on Cliff Central. It's uh, it's that time of year when everyone and uh, journalists take their break and head down to the coast to take their drugs and alcohol uh, away. And <clears throat> while they hope that no one famous dies over this period and that aren't called back into work uh, over that period, um, guys, just a, a quick roundup. What are you looking forward to next year? What are the big things you're looking forward to, hoping for next year that we see that we can have this discussion next year and hopefully in a little bit more of a, in a, a little bit more favorite look back of the year? 
I think in, in February, Jacob Zuma's due, due to the State of the Nation address again, and the EFF have said they won't let him do that. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that goes and what the red overalls get up to. Well, there's uh, Kosatu is scheduled to hold a special national congress. I don't know if it will happen. If it doesn't, there's a regular congress that's uh, an elective co- congress that's supposed to happen that will get a new leadership uh, elected at Kosatu. And then mid-year in June, we'll have a um, wonderful time, Greg and I, at the uh, ANC National General Council. Uh, so that should warm things up next winter. But I think the, 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 for most of us, the big worry is whether the lights will stay on next next year. Continentally, um, well, all I can say is just I hope we manage to put out some of the fires that have erupted this year and that no new fires start again. Um, this year seemed like there's a lot of, lot of new conflicts coming up, um, which we need to sort out quite urgently. Most, the thing I'm most worried about next year is the, the potential spread within Africa of the Islamic State and its ideology and its particularly brutal tactics. Um, that's the story I will be watching closest. Okay. Happy Simon. note to end 2014 on. Yeah, thank you, Simon. Uh, <laughs> so uh, happy holidays on that note. And welcome uh, to the caliphate. Yeah. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, on this show and throughout the year. Uh, we look forward to bringing you more of this uh, next year. And wherever you are, wherever you're traveling, uh, be good to yourselves and each other.